Welcome to the special edition of the EMJ podcast. I'm Ellen Weber, the editor-in-chief of EMJ. The world has dramatically changed for all of us in the last few months. COVID-19 has affected just about everyone on the planet in one way or the other. And to say that this is challenging our public health and medical capabilities is a vast understatement. This is certainly the trial emergency medicine has never faced. Singapore is an island with about 5.6 million people, which is similar to the population of Scotland. On the day we are recording this podcast, the 24th of March, there have been a total of 509 cases of coronavirus and two deaths in Singapore. Singapore has been recognized as being highly successful in preventing the spread of coronavirus and saving lives. I have the great privilege today of talking with two emergency physicians working in Singapore to see what the country has been doing and particularly how emergency medicine has organized around this crisis. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Lee Kai Pin, the head and senior consultant of children's emergency at KK Women's and Children's Hospital in Singapore. Dr. Pin has a particular interest in emergency preparedness and was in charge of the department's response to COVID. And Dr. Jean Ong, a senior consultant of children's emergency at the same institution, Jean has an interest in pediatric resuscitation, toxicology, and simulation, and is also one of the decision editors for EMJ. Welcome to you both. Thank you. And thank you for joining us at midnight, your time. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Perhaps you can start, uh, Kai Pin, telling us through the steps that the country has taken uh, when you first heard about COVID-19. Okay, um, so in general, we have um, roughly divided it into three phases. Uh, phase one, when we first heard about it, uh, initially on the 23rd January, when the first case and the concerns from China and we stepped up because of past experience from SARS, uh, the government um, built up a, a task force to look into this, uh, the risk stratification of who are those at high risk, um, so that we ensure that uh, we limit the spread to Singapore. Then we had the phase two, which is after, um, after China lockdown, uh, specific cities in China lockdown, we are concerned about the community spread. Um, so we re-stratified our strategies to ensure the who are the high risk, ensuring the cluster, uh, monitoring of clusters of spread, uh, and how we re-stratify our patients. Um, and after that has been fairly successful, now we are facing a third phase with a lot of imported cases from uh, other countries, uh, mainly from UK, US, and other parts of Asia. Uh, so we are facing a, a third phase right now. Uh, all in the hopes of flattening the curve so that we do not exhaust our resources uh, in the emergency department. When you say uh, risk stratify, you, you, how did you do that? What were your uh, criteria, shall we say? I think in the first phase, uh, which were where we, where we were mainly dealing with um, imported cases from China and China tourists and China travelers, I think travel was then the most important risk factor when we looked at the screening before attending to patients in the emergency department. When we move on to the second phase, that was from about 4th February to 9th March, uh, that was the community phase where we actually had um, spread of COVID-19 among clusters uh, within Singapore itself and therefore we termed it community spread. 
Um, and again, in the reported in the papers during this phase, the ministry actually went to the police force and enlisted the help of the police in doing contact tracing and finding out all these links between the clusters. And we were fairly successful at that stage. We are now starting our third phase. Unfortunately, since the 9th of March, we are looking at the um, travellers, uh, mainly returning Singaporeans or long-term residents from overseas, kind of swung back again where we have looked at travel being more important because now the community phase, there's slightly less emphasis on it. Mm. What, what, what is happening in the community in terms of people uh, being told what, what should they be doing? Are they going out? Are they uh, being told to stay home? Um, and how is that working? I think in the first phase of our development, uh, we were looking at hand hygiene. We were looking at asking the sick to stay at home. And that meant uh, a medical leave duration of five days at least. We were looking at uh, only the wearing of masks for people who were unwell and had to go out into the public. Uh, I think what has been the key word in the last two weeks, both in Singapore as well as internationally, has been the word social distancing. So we are also looking at um, social distancing uh, at least one meter apart uh, amongst the healthy, preferably two meters apart in the in the sick, um, and if that's if that's feasible, uh, we have also started to shut down um, entertainment venues, and this includes things like pubs, clubs, cinemas. Uh, but the F&B establishments are still allowed to continue operations, provided that they keep to certain regulations in terms of social distancing. Gene. Even in our our current F and B uh, places, that we the the seats are marked and uh, so that pe- people do not uh, just sit too close together. Even for in queues, um, they are given uh, little little outlines on the floor with tapes to ensure that the social distancing is uh, um, adequate. So so these are some of the social measures uh, adopted by Singapore. And and what are the messages coming? From your government, in terms of you know how how to take care of yourself, how how afraid to be, and that sort of thing. Do you, um, I'd love to know what exactly they're they're doing. Yeah, um, th- this has been out of the ordinary. We we don't usually get um, addresses by our prime minister unless it's a special occasion. For example, like you know National Day or Labor Day. But I think during this period, there has been two. Um, separate address done at different points in time of this COVID-19 development where he has sought to present in a very transparent manner um, what the Ministry of Health and what the nation is doing in coping this COVID-19. Yeah, Yeah. very good. Yeah. Um, maybe we now you can tell us a little bit about what have the hospitals done to prepare for this? How have uh, things been arranged, rearranged, whatever, to prepare for the screening, isolating, and caring for patients? Uh, the hospital has been very, very supportive uh, in terms of clear communications, in terms of the organization of a disease outbreak task force, in terms of ensuring um, adequate PPE for healthcare workers to go about delivering medical care in a protected manner and in terms of trying to look at welfare of healthcare workers during this period of time as well. Maybe you can walk us through what, how you are approaching patients that come to the hospital thinking that they may have COVID. What is your setup for 
screening, isolation, who's doing that? Is it emergency? Is it somebody else? Right. Um, currently, the patients come to the emergency department in two main ways. Uh, the first is via dedicated ambulances, uh, via which they may have been referred by general practitioners, GPs, or other emergency departments for, from other hospitals. Uh, the other is through walk-ins. Uh, upon arrival, a, there is a pre-triage screening station uh, where this is manned by non-medical, non-nursing staff who basically runs through a questionnaire. The questionnaire has been revised multiple times depending on the phase of development of COVID-19 in Singapore. So as I mentioned, in the earlier phases, we were concerned about travel. Uh, in the community spread phase, we were concerned about patients who were from or related to these clusters. And in the current phase now, we are back to worrying about travelers again. So after the pre-triage screening, they will then be divided into three specific areas. Uh, the first area, which will house the highest risk individuals, um, that's a negatively pressured place that we call CNX, uh, where we put patients who might have been in contact with confirmed cases or what we term persons under quarantine. So that's one. Uh, the second space, which will then house the non-febrile and non-respiratory patients, and this would house some of the surgical cases that we see. For example, lacerations requiring toilet and suture, fractures requiring manipulation and reduction. The third space would therefore be a respiratory and febrile space where we again attended um, to patients in, in PPE. Uh-huh. And, and who, those are being seen by the emergency department staff, physicians and nurses? Right. And at this moment, um, the bulk of the manpower still comes from within children's emergency ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, as we're mentioning that, can you tell us then a little bit about the, the, the availability of testing? Can anyone get a test? Do they have to have symptoms to get a test? The ministry has laid out some guidelines that we follow fairly strictly too. Uh, essentially, we currently primarily test symptomatic patients. Uh, there is a small group of asymptomatic patients that we test, but these are essentially contacts of positive cases. Mm -hmm. um, I would just add on that uh, uh, all Singaporeans with uh, high risk, um, the fees are not a consideration. The tests are actually sponsored by the government, but uh, this changes according to the risk stratification, which is laid out, and this changes as well. Uh, depending on the phase we are in. So things are, are pretty dynamic, but the idea is that for those for residents and Singaporeans who are, are at risk, uh, um, the government will actually do a lot and uh, invest it into ensuring that the community spread is limited. Right. Um, and have you had any shortages with regards to the test? Any, um, in the U.S., for example, First, we didn't have a test, then we had a test, but then we didn't. Now we've had a shortage of swabs. Are you running into any kind of issues with your testing? Uh, at the moment, we are doing fairly well. Uh, the test is run in house within the hospital itself. Um, and thus far, I think we have been coping. Uh, I am 
cognizant of the fact that things are still evolving and Singapore is still seeing a high level of cases compared to during the community spread phase. So I, I'm a little bit cautious about what I'm saying. Yeah. But essentially, I, I think uh, we, we have been able to meet the needs of our patients. Good, great. Um, can you also tell us a little bit about the, I'm sure this has also been in flux, what is the protective gear you're using and is it different depending on the circumstances you're in? Um, so we depend a lot on, um, first of all, the screeners and the triage nurses. So once you're in the, I would classify as high risk, intermediate risk and low risk areas. Um, so what we do is that after multiple screenings, uh, once we are fairly sure that um, the patient is of the appropriate risk stratification. Our areas are separated into um, um, the high-risk areas in the negative pressure rooms. Um, they will be in full uh, personal protection uh, equipment, uh, PPE gear, uh, which consists of goggles, uh, caps, um, the gown, the N95, and if any suctioning or airway management is required, they will be in PAPR. Uh, um, but if you're in intermediate risk, uh, the minimum would still be the N95 and goggles. Um, and uh, depending on, uh, if you need a swap, the nurse will put them in a isolation room and uh, using PPE to swap before they are discharged uh, so that um, if something slipped from our detection, mm -hmm. that they would still be protected as well. So in terms of the low risk, um, then they would have minimally the surgical mask. And I think one of the most important things is despite all the personal protection, is the fact that hand hygiene is very, very important. And so we need to emphasize that, uh, that as well. So uh, well, if I understand it, when they're high, you, you base the protective gear on whether the patient is high or low risk, not so much on the procedure you're doing, except for when they're doing um, aerosolized or something, they'll use a papper or, or, or swabs, they'll use a uh, papper. That's right. So... Uh... They, they classify procedures as well. So if the procedures are so-called aerosol-generating procedures, which includes uh, intubation, suctioning, uh, -tube. insertion of NG-tube, and God forbid, nebulization, mm -hmm. then uh, this would require full PPE in a PAPR, or what you term pepper. Uh, otherwise, in a high-risk area, as Jean has said, then the full PPE consists of goggles, N95 masks, uh, a full yellow gown as well as gloves. Um, you mentioned earlier about the rostering, and I'm wondering if you're doing anything else with regard to limiting the number of uh, healthcare staff, uh, trainees, uh, faculty, nursing, that are actually interacting with these patients. Are you limiting that in any way? Have you, you know, changed your, your normal flow of you know, people seeing the patients? I think some EDs have adopted a clean and dirty kind of strategy, but I think within our constraints, uh, we have been unable to. So uh, we have divided the entire department medical staff into modular teams, but within each team, everybody rotates through so-called the dirty areas, which essentially is the high-risk area because we are also aware that being in full PPE, it's tiring and fatigue was set in. So we try to rotate both senior and junior staff uh, constantly while on the 12-hour shift to prevent this fatigue and therefore errors happening where they have lapses in their PPE, which we are trying very hard to prevent. Uh, each shift is 12 hours now. Uh, so we do either a 
8 a.m. to 8 p.m. or 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. the next day. And in terms of uh, medical students, um, they are not allowed in high acuity area because of the risk involved. So they've been barred from the emergency department, the critical care areas, uh, and of course the, the isolation areas as well. So um, it does affect some of the training and learning processes. Uh, because of the 12-hour shift, it does limit our, our ability to, to provide training for our residents as well. But some of us, are each individual team, um, I mean, they try to, to incorporate some of the teaching uh, sometimes in the dead of night at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., just to ensure that when the crowd is low, uh, that we can still continue with some of the training necessary as part of uh, their rotation as well. Wow, that takes a lot of energy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Good for you. laughs> so I think one of our one thing our listeners are going to definitely want to know is have any healthcare workers in Singapore contracted the virus, and particularly any emergencies of staff. Um, I, th I think to our knowledge, there have been two, but uh, and, and this is again third party knowledge, and we understand that they did not acquire the disease in the course of their professional work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, well, I just wanted to get an idea um, because I think that, of course, as we said earlier, is one of our biggest fears of, of getting it or, or uh, passing right. it on. Maybe you can describe in general what this whole impact has been on the healthcare workers, particularly emergency staff. How are they uh, holding up? Uh, what have been their, been their concerns? Uh, I think initially, I think there was uh, some fears and some concerns about, um, especially even those in the intermediate and low risk, whether we were doing enough to protect ourselves. But um, as we went through the phases, uh, a lot of us are more reassured about what we are doing and um, the strategy seems to be working. But we need to, to um, make sure that um, society as a whole understands this as well to declare uh, the risk stratification in terms of exposure risk uh, appropriately because it puts us at risk. But if we overdo in terms of putting so much, such uh, heavy burden on the resources required just because of these few individuals, then, then we might run the risk of not having enough uh, PPE for ourselves. Have your hospitals been doing anything particular to you know, show their support for you, help out in this setting, particularly you say you're doing 12-hour shifts. Um, what kind of support have you been getting from your institutions? I think the first, uh, as alluded to earlier, is really the clear communication. It was clearly a boost and, and that reassured a lot of us. The second part uh, where it came to is um, in terms of the provision of PPE. Uh, the adequate provision of PPE. The third is the provision of staff clinics to actually look at, uh, to review staff who are actually falling ill this period to decide again on their risk and whether they should then proceed for a COVID-19 swap. Uh, the fourth is in terms of welfare. Um, so at some point in time, we were getting ice cream 24-7. Um, uh, <laughs> well, well, it's a small token and ice cream melts, that's true, but essentially that, helped boost the morale of people who are working at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, and the public has also been very supportive. There was an initial, um, as with when we experienced doing SARS in 2003, there was an initial backlash where 
some members of the public, some non-discerning members of the public would have avoided uh, healthcare workers in uniforms. Uh, but I think we have seen uh, a clear trend on social media as well as in physical donations of food and goodie bags to healthcare workers to basically let us unite against this fight together. I think I find that all very heartwarming and quite gratifying to be a healthcare worker at this point in time. That's lovely. One thing I, I meant to ask you earlier, then we'll sort of just a few more questions if you can. Um, are you testing healthcare workers on any kind of routine basis or just if they're symptomatic or, or have known contact and without PPE or how is that working? One of the major, I think, reassuring things besides the staff testing is that um, we are almost updated daily about the cases that we have received, so everyone is quite transparent about uh, uh, the exposure risk. Um, so, so essentially, we do not do um, swap testing of asymptomatic individuals, yeah. uh, even those who have been exposed to positive cases uh, uh, on, on a good note, the personnel who have been exposed to positive cases were involved in a consultation with the positive cases and they were appropriately attired in PPE. Now, as a routine measure, uh, since six to eight weeks ago, all of us have been monitoring our temperatures twice a day and logging it <laughs> electronically. And we have been masked... Uh, in all clinical areas within the emergency department. I mean, the, the lowest risk level, we would still have to be in a surgical mask. And if not, we have been talking to one another through our N95s. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So even when you're not in the patient care area, are you wearing your surgical masks? Uh, not in the pantry. Okay, well, obviously, <laughs> that's pretty hard to eat. <laughs> it makes it kind of challenging. <laughs> but, Taking it off record, I'm seated quite close to Jean now and we have no masks on. <laughs> the, the morning cup of coffee has become much more difficult. Uh, yes. yes. Uh, personally, um, we are very concerned about our family members, especially if they are elderly, especially my parents. So a lot of us are making sure that uh, we are well protected as well because it, 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 it involves our family members. Um, so um, Yes, I think that's a big... Uh, fear for many of us is not just that we would get it, but we would give it to somebody that we loved. So many of us in the U.S. and I believe also in the U.K. have seen that the volume of other patients coming to our emergency departments has actually decreased. And we're wondering if you're noticing that too and uh, how you are handling that other group of patients. The, the other group of patients that we refer to as our business as usual patients, uh, the load has actually dropped a fair bit. We used to see about 450 patients a day. I think that has come down to just over 300 or on a good day or on a bad day, depends. It's just slightly less than 300. Um, but we are also concerned because at this moment in time, um, Singapore may be headed for another bout of dengue because the, the viral strains are different. And this is, we have also seen an increase in dengue numbers over the last couple of months. So while we are gratified that the business as usual numbers have dropped to allow us to cope with the COVID-19 um, patients or the suspected COVID-19 patients, we are also worried that the 
the spate of viral fevers, including dengue, may be actually on an upward trend. And I think um, one of the other challenge we have had with business as usual is our um, surgical patients. Um, there is a problem of some of them having concurrent um, respiratory tract infection. So um, that has also changed some of our, our work as well. So things might go slower uh, because if they have uh, upper respiratory tract infections, uh, that limits kind of uh, where they are risk stratified and how they are managed as well. Mm. Do, are there other places other than the emergency departments that are screening particularly the well-appearing patients? So in order for the residents in Singapore to get easy and subsidized access, they have actually activated the public health preparedness clinics. Uh, there are like 500 over of them scattered over the small island where for a nominal fee, the, the public can actually get a consultation. And this is specifically for this purpose for COVID-19 and for acute respiratory infections. Uh, however, in terms of the actual COVID-19 swab, then if found to be at risk or high risk, they would then have to be referred onwards for the swab itself. So there's some control over the access um, to the swabs. So it's a tier response and risk stratification that uh, helps us ensure that uh, we are not overwhelmed as well. So I just want to sum up with two questions for you. I guess the first one would be, um, you've told us a lot of things that have been done there. Do you have any idea of what you would say are the most important elements of the response so far? I think it has been a calibrated, measured and tiered approach to generate enough worrying people to practice good hand hygiene, to attempt to practice social distancing, uh, but not overt enough to cause widespread hysteria or panic. And, um, and that would have a dramatic impact on the economy of Singapore and, and on our survival as a nation. I, I think one of the main, main thing that perhaps Singapore is, we learned from SARS um, during our experience, so we kind of have some mental preparation of what, what would happen if another SARS came about. Uh, and, and the fact that the government worked very closely with both public as well as private hospitals uh, and ensuring there's coordination amongst every, every uh, medical institution and, and to, to enforce the public to do a bit of their part uh, in this situation, I think that helped a lot. Um, where the emergency departments are concerned, um, the head of departments have also been communicating uh, via text platform and we have been also sharing ideas to how to improve some of these um, work processes, how to resolve some of these bottlenecks. So there has been a lot of comms to help tweak the process as we go along. I think we have evolved quite a fair bit in the last eight weeks uh, in dealing. But, but as every day bring new challenges, right? There, there are always new things to talk about and new ideas to brainstorm together. And it's always good when uh, one hospital faces a problem, especially emergency department, that the rest of the hospital know about it because of this this conversation that is going on, I think that is critical as well and not work in silos. I think if, if, if everything is interconnected and communications are clear, that really helps a lot. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So my 
final question for each of you is um, if you had to say anything to your fellow emergency physicians and the rest of the world, what message do you have for them? I think most of us would uh, perhaps want to, to I, I mean, a lot of the uh, healthcare workers, frontline workers as well, nurses, um, even the porters and assistants, I think of them included, they are taking a risk. So we need to recognize that uh, the risk is there, but we need to work together, not to be too cavalier about it. Uh, I think there were some, uh, a lot of people suggesting that, you, first of all, you need to protect yourself first, uh, but you need to, to risk stratify uh, so that you don't overdo things and, and resources get run out. I think we, a lot of co conversations, you need to sound out your fears so that um, they are addressed and you don't keep them inside because that might be a problem as well. I think a lot of stresses are there amongst the, the, the healthcare workers. So I think uh, this needs to be looked into and conversations about this uh, are required, I think. Okay, do you want to add anything? Um, yes, uh, so dear fellow emergency, emergency. department <laughs> physicians, uh, we train for this. Uh, while all of us, for all of us, the circumstances might be quite different, but I think we are all in this as frontliners because it is important for our patients, it is important for ourselves, it is important for our families. So we don't know how long this situation will last, but I think if we work together, we look out for one another and we care for one another, I think we can fight this virus together. Well, thank you both very much for spending this time with us. And I'm sure our readers and listeners will be really interested in what you've had to say and bring those ideas back to their own institutions. And thank you for those very heartening messages. May I wish both of you the best of luck and best of health in the next few months. Thank you, and you too, Ellen. Thank you. We also want to let our readers and listeners know that EMJ is accepting short articles on how processes in EDs and hospitals have changed, developed, and innovative to meet the COVID-19 challenge. We will publish these as reports from the front. And in fact, our guests today will have an article coming out in the EMJ shortly, describing more in more detail what they've done.